It's time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, it being the first Monday of the month, coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and we have another treasure trove of books to share with you this November. Beverly Ruiz Muller waded into Booker controversy territory and read both The Testaments by Margaret Atwood and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, joint winners for 2019. Melvin Minard devoured Furious Hours, Casey Sepp's literary true crime thriller about Harper Lee's non-fiction novel that never saw the light of day. John Hanks strongly recommends Gary Goldman and Marika Hresenhoetz's superbly illustrated Field Guide to Mushrooms and Other Fungi of South Africa. Debut reviewer Cheho Fatso Modika explored what it means to be queer in South Africa in They Called Me Queer, compiled by Kim Windvogel and Kelly Eve Quipman. Leslie Beek could not resist Master of Language Philip Pullman's latest The Book of Dust, Volume 2. Beryl Eichenberger discovered a sensitive approach to grief in Melina Lewis's After You Died. The novel, in which four young women go for an early run and only three return, is set in Fishhook. Vanessa Levenstein found much that was familiar in Fenula Dowling's OK, OK, OK. Penny Lorimer brings us her views on The Second Sleep by Robert Harris and A Walk at Midnight by Alex Van Tonder. Fred Kamalo's The Longest March took Philip Todras back 120 years when 7,000 Zulu mine workers marched from the gold mines of Johannesburg to Natal, covering a distance of 500 kilometres over 10 days. And Vanessa Levenstein spoke to Andrew Newman about his conscious bedtime stories for children. Let's kick off with the joint Booker winners. Beverly Ruiz Muller, tell us what all the fuss was about. First, let's ask the big question. Was Canadian writer Margaret Atwood's novel, The Testaments, a worthy joint winner of this year's Booker Prize? The answer is a qualified yes. There is no doubt that this bold and highly visible book was the short-listed book that could not be ignored in a time of Trumpian, abusive reconfiguring of what a decent world should look like. Bernadine Evaristo, aged 60, shared the prize with her novel Girl, Woman, Other. Like Atwood, who is now almost 80, she is a much-awarded writer of a mixed-race British and Nigerian background, whose poetry and short story expertise is evident in the unusual style and density of her winning novel. Atwood's The Testament is a page-turner, yet it is very much a sequel of The Handmaid's Tale, so recognizable given the huge success of the TV series with its powerful depiction of female fertility slaves dressed in fascist-reminding colors of red robes and white bonnets. They are legally raped in order to supply childless Gilead with offspring. The Handmaid's Tale, which was written in 1985, was cautionary and bleak. At the time, the idea of such a society taking root in a strong democracy, in this case the USA, seemed improbable, yet that seems less certain today. Atwood now offers us hope. 
This narrative sketches through the eyes of a surprising turncoat Aunt Lydia the manner of Gilead's eventual downfall. Aunt Lydia, the wicked godmother in the first book, returns to the Testaments as a secret mole worthy of John le Carré-style intrigue. A divorced former judge in the pre-Gilead world, she has been forced into a stadium with other educated women and forced to watch and eventually participate in mass killings in order not only to eradicate the bold, but also to intimidate the remainder. Lydia uses the one agency left to her, her agile brain, to set up a long-term system which she will ultimately control, a house where only women may enter, the aunts who groom all other Gilead women. Aunts are the only women who can read, and at the center of many Atwood novels is the understanding that knowledge is power. Lydia collects a vast secret library of books and texts, as well as an even more secret stash of files on all the crimes and piccadillas of the corrupt commanders and Gilead itself, and this evidence will prove their downfall. Corruption and greed, it is always so. I can't reveal more. Atwood writes with the clarity of a master writer, and yet I could not avoid the feeling that this tale would not stay with me for long. It offers a satisfying botcher at the end, and yet I wished for something richer. Revenge, perhaps? Bernadine Evaristo's book is the complex intertwining of the lives of 12 women, mostly black, and the minutiae, often very detailed, of their life struggles, loves, and aspirations. The format she has used looks like poetry, long and short lines, no punctuation. It's actually not too difficult to read, but like poetry, each line demands careful attention. And in a book of almost 450 pages, that's quite a big ask. I found it feisty and fascinating and would have loved it more had it been about half its size. It's a lot to digest. The ending was like the Testaments, too predictable for me. But perhaps we South Africans are more used to surprises about notional heredity than complacent Britons. I think it's largely a book written for writers rather than readers, unlike Atwood's, which is the other way around. I'm glad I had a chance to read both of them, but I feel it's unlikely that I shall return to their pages, although if I do, it will be more likely the Everisto. Once again, the literati are arguing about this year's Booker. Now, that is predictable. Well, I'll bet many of you would love to read one or both of the Booker Prize-winning novels, and we're delighted to give you the chance to win a signed copy of The Testaments, along with a Testaments tote bag, pin badge, and T-shirt, a bumper haul indeed. Simply tell us, which author wrote The Testaments, Margaret Atwood or Bernadine Evaristo? Call us on 021-401-1013 with your answer. The winner will be contacted after the show, so don't delay and get calling now. The number again, 021-401-1013. Let's go from present-day drama to Harper Lee's unpublished true crime. 
Melvin Minnar, you devoured Casey Sepp's furious hours. When last did you read To Kill a Mockingbird? America's most famous novel is still in print after millions of copies sold, was made into an award-winning movie in 1962, and is currently enjoying rave reviews in a new Broadway version that will run well into the new year. Yes, Harper Lee's wondrous American classic and Pulitzer Prize-winning book, first published in 1960, is a story for the ages. Its weave of small-town, colorful characters, mystery, and delicate but potent portrayal of race issues has held relevance and force to this day. But To Kill a Mockingbird, bestseller and reader's hit of all time, was Harper Lee's only published novel. She died in 2016 at the age of 89, never getting around to writing another book. And therein lies a tale, the one that the brilliant young writer Casey Sepp records in one of the year's top reads, Furious Hours, subtitled Murder, Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee is a brilliant wordplay title that accurately summarizes the compelling story that you do not want to put down. Sepp's historical research delves into such detail that combined with clear matter-of-fact prose, the narrative takes on a cinematic quality, and even this relates to the story. Harper Lee had a wayward friend from childhood who became an even more wayward and celebrated author called Truman Capote. Capote wrote one of the greatest non-fiction works of the previous century, In Cold Blood, a shimmering, riveting prose masterpiece about a senseless small-town murder, The Murderers and Their Trial. A true bestseller, it was made into a movie in 1967. It was a friend's success with this newfangled non-fiction novel that finally spurred Lee out of her decades-long writer's block in 1977 when she heard about the trial of Robert Lee Burns in rural Alabama. Burns had shot and killed the Reverend Willie Maxwell in front of 600 congregants at a funeral. The Reverend Maxwell had, at the time, put the fear of God into the congregation because no less than five deaths had been attributed to him, although never ever could be proven or led to a conviction. On the side, Maxwell had been cashing in on the victim's insurance policies. It's easy to see how Capote's experience inspired Lee to take on this as a new great writing project. She knew the people, the place, and more importantly, the small politics, history, and gossip. After a spectacular trial, Burns was found not guilty, a complex conundrum that could anchor the new book brilliantly. But despite her intense work, notes, interviews, and endless rewriting, the story behind it and the eye-popping trial never became the follow-up book the novelist had plotted and aspired to. Casey Sepp tells all the stories in a sweeping narrative that paints the world of Lee's youth, the dark world of Maxwell, the marvelously liberal lawyer Tom Ratney, who got Burns off the hook, and of course the dramatics of the trial. She follows Lee's ensuing years as she works on the project to no avail, until any possible manuscript that exists is finally sealed out of sight when Harper Lee dies. Structured in scenic chapters, Furious Hours reads like a thriller, and it is often the beauty of her bright journalistic prose that drives one's reading eyes. She polished a stunning real-life story into the sort of literature that Capote wrote years ago and Lee had hoped to write as well. Even if you are unfamiliar with Harper Lee or her magnificent novel, this is a book that runs exquisitely with the inquisitive mind.
John Hanks went foraging in Gary Goldman and Marika Hrezenhout's superbly illustrated Field Guide to Mushrooms and Other Fungi in, of South Africa. One of the great attractions of Africa is its extraordinary celebrations of biodiversity, a never-ending source of incredulity that the natural world has evolved to produce so many different, fascinating and highly attractive forms of life, from flowering plants to our well-documented vertebrates and invertebrates. For those of you who have an insatiable need to see what more there is on offer, I must strongly recommend Gary Goldman and Marika Hrezenhout's Field Guide to Mushrooms and Other Fungi of South Africa. I have no hesitation in saying it is one of the very best field guides I've ever seen, superbly illustrated with well-presented and informative text for each species. Now, in case you're already wondering how any species of fungus can have so much to offer, fungi are a taxonomic kingdom on their own that includes yeast, moulds, mildews, mushrooms and toadstools, and there are an astonishing estimated 171,000 species in South Africa alone. Fungi are some of the most widely distributed organisms on Earth, and the wide-ranging distribution of some of the species is amazing, unlike any of the birds or mammals. Furthermore, many of them are of great environmental and medical importance, and some of them are wonderful sources of food for humans, a topic that appeals to me enormously as an adventurous foodie who loves eating mushrooms. Now, correctly identifying these delectable delicacies is, of course, of paramount importance. By far, the majority of fungi are harmless, but be careful, because those that are not include some of the most poisonous organisms on Earth. Each mushroom described in this book has an unambiguous notification near the top of the page, putting the species in one of six categories, namely edible, inedible, unknown, suspect, poisonous and deadly poisonous. Essential information for any mushroom collector. The poisonous mushrooms have such fascinating common names, such as the weeping fairy cake and the time-bomb toadstool. Although the information presented in this field guide is of a very high quality, the authors strongly advise that if you're going out foraging for the first time, apprentice yourself to an experienced forager, as some of the poisonous mushrooms, unfortunately, look very similar to the edible ones. This is very sound advice. Then, learn when and where to go hunting, how to pick the mushrooms, when and how to prepare them for eating. When my wife and I were living in Switzerland, we got enormous satisfaction getting up early in the morning to collect a big basket of field mushrooms. It didn't take long to recognize that the best fields and the importance of getting out early to beat the other foragers to it. I must confess, though, that we were unadventurous, going for just one easily recognized species. This book has opened my eyes to the amazing number of unlikely-looking edible mushrooms we have growing here in South Africa, such as the bright red cap of a mushroom named Witch's Hat, equally unlikely-looking palatable delicacies such as the common puffball and the fan-shaped jelly fungus have been a real wake-up call to me to get out and start foraging close to my doorstep, particularly with a superb illustration of the porcini described by the authors as a mushroom hunter's delight. But I will be cautious and join Gary Goldman on one of his foraging field trips when they start up again in March, when autumn sets in on the Cape.
The title again in this superbly illustrated most useful book written by Gary Goldman and Marika Hresenhout is Field Guide to Mushrooms and Other Fungi of South Africa. It's published by Strake Nature in Cape Town and it sells for 370 rand. We're listening to All I Ask of You from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, played by the Hungarian trio. Chekhovatso Madika, you jumped at the chance to weigh in on They Call Me Queer, compiled by Kim Windvogel and Kelly Eve Quipman. What were your thoughts? They Called Me Queer, compiled by Kim Windvogel and Kelly Eve Quipman, edited by Kelly Smith, published by Quella Books. 
The title in itself is provocative. The word queer, once meant to be derogatory, is now one of positivity and identity in a modern world. What attracted me to choosing the book was the beautiful portrait of Ismail Hanif on the cover, better known as Piper Laurie. He was a hairdresser and a famous dancer who was based in the community of District 6. He always dressed as a woman and he used feminine pronouns. Kim Van Wachel explains how she got the idea to write They Called Me Queer while she was in New York for the Commission on the Status of Women at the United Nations, where she met the author of She Called Me Woman, Nigeria's Queer Women Speak, and how she always had the idea to compile queer stories. And she called on Kelly Eve Goodman, who is the author of Because I Couldn't Kill You, to assist in the process. The novel explores what it means to be queer as a person of color in South Africa. The contributors share with the readers the stories of extreme trauma, stories of love, stories of heartbreak, stories of lust, stories of coming out and being in the closet. They share stories of being awkward and being accepted or rejected by their loved ones. They talk about encouraging stories about self-love and people trying to figure themselves out. Reading They Called Me Queer was amazing because it felt like I was on this adventure and I didn't want it to come to an end. The contributors had something to share and they managed to paint a picture for the reader and move you with every sentence. And that is so beautiful. Every page from They Called Me Queer leaves you with different feelings and thoughts. The novel has an amazing glossary at the back for readers who are not familiar with queer terms and it makes it easier when you're reading and you're not sure about the meaning of the word. It was a short novel but is well worth reading and I hope there will be more books from Kim and Kelly Eve. Leslie Beek, there wasn't a chance you would pass up reading Philip Pullman's latest The Book of Dust, Volume 2, subtitled The Secret Commonwealth. What makes this author so irresistible for you? The trouble with Philip Pullman, even for addicts like me, is that you have to read his books at least twice to keep up with his galloping intellectual fireworks. And at close on 800 pages, that's a bit of a mission. The Book of Dust, Volume 2, is no exception. Subtitled The Secret Commonwealth, I wondered just how many times it's advisable to read the Golden Compass Trilogy plus Volume 1 of The Book of Dust before embarking on this one. For sure, it will be easier to understand if you've done so, and correspondingly harder if you have not. I have learned so much as a writer from reading Philip Pullman and that usually on the second or third reading. He's such a master of language, a waterspout of ideas, a ringmaster of plot. Something happens on almost every page, and something else happens too, something you might not at first notice, hard to take in at first, often because the actual story is so shocking in its originality and force that you're speeding along to find out what happens. The Book of Dust is about, well, it's about so many things, but it follows in different ways the life of our beloved Lyra from the beginning. In Volume 1, Lyra is a baby rescued by Malcolm and Alice during a long, seemingly endless, flood in the Thames Valley. The same characters appear 20 years later in the second volume, but the canvas is much broader, encompassing Europe, 
and heading towards Central Asia. The threat, the unease, the darkness are much greater too, if that were possible. And Lyra is no longer a baby or a child, but a fully grown young woman studying at Oxford, struggling with intellectual ideas that challenge her life beliefs and shake her existence to the core. As an editor, I ask myself disloyally if it could not perhaps have been a trifle, well, shorter. Particularly in the beginning, the pace is stately and much of the story takes place in the dark, no doubt by absolute design. But the reader in me dismisses that as first reading, read it again, read it more carefully, says that inner voice. For Pullman aficionados, this is essential reading. For the people who called their beloved dog Lyra, like me, it's more of a challenge. Where is our Lyra? She seems lost in a welter of ideas and events until late in the book. I miss her. I worry about her. I fret about what's going to happen. How am I going to wait for another year, at least? And what a disappointing ending to a massive read. Three words to be continued. It's not right. Come on, Mr. Pullman. The Book of Dust Volumes 1 and 2 are published by David Fickling Books in 2018 and 2019 in association with Penguin Books. Let's listen to I Love Paris from Cole Porter's Can Can, sung by Cecily Pepler. in springtime I love Paris in the fall I love Paris in the winter when it drizzles I love Paris in the summer when it sizzles I love Paris every moment of the year I love Paris Why, oh why do I love Paris Because my love is here I dined in Rome, it was home next to Venice When in Britain had my fun playing tennis I climbed the Alps but the Alps are a menace I love Paris Crossed an abyss for the Swiss and their watches Been to the Bronx, but the Bronx have got their glutches The old befriends me, he sends me his swatches I love that Paris I love Paris every moment Every moment of the year I love Paris My love is me You excite and then ignite No place makes you feel so right Whoa, whoa, whoa I love that Paris Raising cane on the sand 
thrills you just like pink champagne. Whoa, 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 I love that Paris. I love Paris every moment. Every moment of the India, a small group tour in February, Mumbai to Udaipur, marble palaces and brilliant lakes, Delhi to Jaipur, the pink city with her amber fort and beautifully adorned elephants. Marvel at the sparkling perfection of the Taj Mahal in Agra to Varanasi on the Ganges, real India's most sacred city. Contact TE Tours Tiger Valley, 021-914-2265. All-inclusive, exotic places, great experience. Cape Town violinist Michael Duffett is back home to perform the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra in the annual Huberta Rupert Memorial Concert. This concert in the Endler Hall in Stellenbosch at 8pm on Friday the 29th of November marks the centenary of the birth of this remarkable philanthropist. Skulk van der Merwe, the fourth Len van Sale Conductors Competition winner, will be on the podium with Brahms' Symphony No. 3. Tickets at CompuTicket and Artscape Dialysis. Experience the most beautiful gardens and support St. Joseph's Home Adopt-A-Bed Project. Stellenberg Gardens in Kenilworth was featured on the BBC's Around the World in 80 Gardens. This lush green oasis is open to the public for the fifth time in order to raise funds for much-needed beds for St. Joseph's. The gardens at 30 Oak Avenue, Kenilworth are open on 9 and 10 November from 9.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Tickets are just 50 rand for adults and tea is served at 30 rand. Visit stjosephshome.org.za You still have a chance to win a signed copy of the Testaments along with the Testaments tote bag, pin badge and t-shirt in our easy competition. Simply tell us which author wrote the Testaments, Margaret Atwood or Bernadine Evaristo. Call us on 021-401-1013 with your answer. Remember, the winner will be contacted right after the show, so don't delay and get calling now. The number again, 021-401-1013. All that's dead is the 12th... Beryl Eichenberger discovered a sensitive approach to grief in Melina Lewis's After You Died. The novel, in which four young women go for an early run and only three return, is set in Fishhook. This novel in the best-selling Logan Lazarus McRae series, written by Stuart McBride. I'm embarrassed to say that this was the first time I'd heard of this author, so was eager to add another thriller writer to my growing list. Set in Aberdeen, Scotland, the landscape and vernacular of this country is used to backdrop the story and is effective, if slightly distracting to a first-time reader. With a storyline that is gory and extremely clever, the team of police involved paint an interesting and at times very humorous, albeit off-the-wall picture, of the force in Aberdeen. Meeting them for the first time was a bit of a shock, as they are, to say the least, 
a rather weird bunch. The principal character is Logan McRae, back from a year off on the sick, which we learn was from a stabbing from a previous case. He's hoping to ease back into work, but this is not to be. Having been posted to the Department Professional Standards, he is assigned to work with Investigating Officer D.I. King, who's in a wee bit of trouble as he was once part of a nationalist terrorist group. And McRae is detailed to shadow him during the case to ensure all runs smoothly. But the case is turning into a very stressful, high-profile, under-the-spotlight-of-the-media case. With Scottish nationalism in the headlines, the factions for and against are hotting up. When outspoken anti-independence campaigner Professor Nicholas Wilson goes missing and his colleagues find a serious amount of blood in his kitchen, but no body, the media are hungry for results and the police are desperate for leads. And this is the case. And Wilson, it seems, is not the only one. When packages turn up on a councillor's desk, who also seems to be MIA, but not linked to Wilson... Or is he? The case takes a sharp turn as the dots start connecting and as more gruesome packages appear, the team are chasing whatever clues they can find. And as a journalist threatens to expose D.I. King, the heat is turned up. The trail of tweets discovered by D.S. Roberta Steele gives D.C. Tufty Quirrell, a madcap character if ever there was one, a chance to show his IT skills and unravel a trail that leads to one Hayden Lockheed, whose dad was a serial criminal and is now dying of cancer in an old-age home. Hayden doesn't seem to be the brightest crayon in the box, and the tempo speeds up. With a cast of the slowest, the radical, the weirdos, the drinkers, the incompetent and the macho vying with the Aberdeen police infighting, this is a novel that has been dubbed Tartan Noir, and I would agree... The more empathetic D.S. McRae has his work cut out keeping a cool head, well, sometimes, and getting his colleagues to work together, not without some unorthodox methods. Logan is under pressure, there is a media frenzy, and his superiors are not coping well, and there's an awful lot of blood being spilt. Comic characters, many who seem so unlikely as police officers that one despairs of any results, loads of humour lead us on a merry chase to an ending as surprising as the beginning. A good read, but I think I may well stick to Ian Rankin for my Scots thriller fix.
that was It Had To Be You, played by Mike Lartz on the clarinet with Eddie Kirkwood on the keyboard. Vanessa Levenstein found much that was familiar in Fanula Dowling's OK, OK, OK. I love Fanula Darling's novels. Described as South Africa's Jane Austen, I've also enjoyed the odd occasion over the years when our paths have crossed and thought how this woman, with her soft curls and sharp wit, is indeed straight out of one of her very own novels. OK, OK, OK is her latest novel, and while she captures the nuances of our society with irony and delight, she does mention loud and clear the Napoleonic Wars, read South Africa's political climate. Vida, a sound operator, tours the world with large-scale musicals. She has a huge heart, a free spirit, and a fine ear not only for sound levels on stage, but also off. Vida is an empathetic listener. Miriam is a mother, a wife, and is desperately trying to complete her thesis on Olive Schreiner. Only, Miriam dies from a sudden heart attack before she's completed the seminal work. She leaves behind her daughter Cecily, adopted son Luiso, and a hopelessly lost husband, Simon. Simon, too, was an academic, but gave it up for a lucrative administrative job, ironically titled Head of Effective Communication at the equally ironically titled University of Adam Master, read UCT. Darling is unapologetic in her hilarious, exasperated and tragic deconstruction of this fictitious university. At times I found myself reading really quickly. When reading about the protests of the university, it felt too close to home, literally and figuratively. But then Darling breaks the tension with delicious descriptions about the seemingly inane. So often when you read a book telling different stories with different timelines, it feels predictable and that you know what's going to happen in the next chapter. But Darling is far too skilled. The narratives flow into each other, weaving, crashing and colliding, much like the sea on the famous False Bay coastline that is central to so many of Darling's plots. A host of engaging characters get introduced, and eventually Simon, from his uptight academic world, and Vida, from her creative world, meet. OK, OK, OK is not a lecture. It is not didactic or politically correct. Darling has the skill and the imagination to tell her stories with originality and care. She unpicks post-apartheid South Africa and gets to the heart, really the heart, of the experience, especially as a woman, navigating the simple business of living, giving, and trying to join the dots together to make a difference. Penny Lorimer brings us her views on The Second Sleep by Robert Harris and A Walk at Midnight by Alex Fantondo. I was introduced to Robert Harris this month through his latest novel, The Second Sleep. The book begins with an announcement that it is late in the afternoon of Tuesday the 9th of April in the year of our risen Lord, 1468. I settle back in happy anticipation of an historical thriller along the lines of Ellis Peters or C.J. Sansom. A newly ordained priest, Christopher Fairfax, is travelling by slow horse to an isolated community in a remote Exmoor village. He's been sent by his bishop to conduct the funeral of the deceased parish priest. It appears that the dead man was an amateur historian who often went exploring in the hopes of discovering interesting artefacts. His death was reportedly caused by an accidental fall down a gorge. During his overnight stay on the dead priest's sofa, Christopher begins to explore his study and his library. In a glass case, he finds, among other things, a bundle of plastic straws and what is obviously a defunct Apple iPhone. 
After wondering for a tiny moment whether I'd read wrong, I realised that my expectations of this book were about to be excitingly shaken up. As the story unfolds, it's revealed that events are actually taking place 800 years in the future, after some sort of deadly apocalypse caused by a systemic collapse of technology. This resulted in thousands of deaths from wars and previously preventable diseases. As in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments, an authoritarian and inflexible church now runs the show. It labels past science, or scientism as it is called, heresy, which ensures that people live in cruel and backward conditions as they did in the Middle Ages, and that such important and hard-won concepts as liberalism and democracy have been sacrificed on the altar of populism and power. At the priest's funeral, a mysterious figure casts doubt on the manner of his death. Father Christopher, our hero, seems likely to ignore this and other anomalies at first, but violent weather prolongs his stay in the village. Human bones are discovered buried around a strange tower in the woods, and records of an heretical movement emerge. Christopher, together with a beautiful lady of the manor, her overbearing fiancé and a branded heretic and his helper, becomes determined to discover the truth of what went before and what the dead priest uncovered. During this process, everything he believes about the history of the world, his faith and himself is tested. The title of the book, The Second Sleep, refers to the period of wakefulness in the middle of the night, reportedly common in pre-industrial societies. It's proposed by at least one reviewer that this is meant to suggest the current period of relative freedom and prosperity of our so-called developed world before it plunges again into darkness, a prospect that induces a slight shiver of dread. It's a kind of cautionary tale, perhaps warning us not to place too much reliance on technological systems which have already proved to be pretty fragile, but also a really entertaining and pacey read. The next book I'm reviewing, A Walk at Midnight, also involves a fatal fall, but this time from a roof of the New York State Governor's Mansion. Jane Ronson's husband, Colin, is the governor, who dies suddenly when he falls or is pushed. Jane is on the verge of becoming a successful novelist, and her debut, in which the main character kills her husband by, you guessed it, pushing him off a roof, obviously raises all sorts of questions in the minds of the case investigators. The book is told mostly in the first person of Jane. She describes her life from childhood, where she was constantly pressured to change her slightly off-kilter personality and to conform. She initially resists, but finally, after a couple of traumatic life events, including witnessing her father's abuse of her mother and being raped at a university party, she succumbs to societal pressure, telescoping her own dreams and becoming a devoted wife and mother, who continues to support her husband no matter what. Many women will recognise Jane's story. Sadly, most of us have at least one experience of being physically, mentally or emotionally abused, or at least deliberately diminished by a male partner, employer or parent. Sometimes this happens in such subtle ways that the abuse is hard to identify, often hard to avoid and always hard to talk about. This will make it easy for female readers especially to identify with Jane and her actions. Jane's story is interspersed with case interviews with various people, such as her grown-up children, her hostile in-laws, and her own parents, as well as Jane herself. It's an effective device for building the tension until the truth of what actually happened finally emerges. Alex Fantonde is the author, and, as her name suggests, she has roots in South Africa, although she now apparently lives in L.A. This is her second book, and I'll certainly be looking out for more. The two books I reviewed were The Second Sleep by Robert Harris and A Walk at Midnight by Alex van Tonder.
On the day we arrive on the planet And blinking step into the sun There's more to be seen than can ever be seen More to do than can ever be done Some say eat or be eaten of Circle of Life from The Lion King sung by Andre Schwartz. Fred Kamalo's The Longest March took Philip Todras back 120 years when 7,000 Zulu mine workers marched from the gold mines of Johannesburg to Natal covering a distance of 500 kilometers over 10 days. The Longest March is by Fred Kamalo and it's published by Penguin Random House South Africa or Umuzi. First, it has to be said that Fred Kumalo certainly knows how to write a story. It's a gripping read which will keep you turning the pages. Also, it goes into the genre of historical novel, something which I've become quite fascinated by, because the word history is something that always intrigues. It's his story, and people tend to forget it's a person's story. It's her story, it's their story, and any history book is not objective. It's told through a certain perspective. And sometimes historical novels are quite useful in terms of setting the scene and doing it very graphically and, if well-researched, very well. I think historical novels should, in fact, become compulsory reading or part of any history course because it does provide a sense of context which often that storyline is forgotten about with too many dates and details. This one is about a march that happened 120 years ago when 7,000 Zulu mine workers walked from the gold mines in Johannesburg to Natal. That covers a distance of 500 kilometers and was done over a 10-day period. The period is the beginnings of the Anglo-Boer War. And just getting to grips with Johannesburg at that time, even a bit of Kimberley in fact too, the migrant labour system, as I say, the context of the times, and you meet two very important people. The one is Philippa, who is of mixed race, but is very, very white. And her relationship is with Naduku, who is a black man from Zulu background, and also getting a sense of where he comes from, with his antecedents being the royal family and attachments to, and having actually been brought up in a family where the father was the mixer of medicines and herbal remedies. So you have a very different senses and you go through a time period from the 1800s 
through to this time when this was happening, the turn of the century, and meeting these two characters in particular, different backgrounds, who are in a relationship, and the frowns they are getting because here is a white woman uh, in an association with a black man, and the cynical way in which this is viewed. Duku's background is also very, well, should I say, mixed in terms of where he comes from, starting off in the royal house and being the son of the father who is the doctor who does all the herbal remedies and growing up in that tradition, knowing all about those cultural associations, who ultimately won't go into all the details but ends up uh, going through a mission school, speaking an impeccable English, having a background in Christianity as well, and always abdicating from the role of being the leader, so always trying to be the compromiser. And here he is in a different situation now where he's called upon to lead the march. And the dynamics behind it are quite disturbing, quite interesting, and I'm not going to tell you more because it really makes for a very, very gripping read. That's Longest March. It's by Fred Kamalo. The publishers are Umuzi, and I really would recommend it. I'm sorry that I missed out Fred Kamalo when he spoke at the Open Book Festival in September, but I'd certainly like to meet the man who knows how to tell a very good story. Finishing on a relaxing note, Vanessa Levenstein, you spoke to Andrew Newman about his conscious bedtime stories for children. For the last five years, award-winning international children's book author Andrew Newman has turned the last 20 minutes of the day into a magical world of conscious learning through beautifully illustrated picture books. And I'm looking at them now because we have Andrew in studio. Welcome to Book Choice. Thank you very much. And my first thought is I wish I'd had them when my kids were little. (laughs) That's beautiful. I do hear that quite a lot because parents find something in it for themselves and uh, also for their little ones. So you're speaking to this different age that the stories can touch and appeal to. What is it about these books that are different from your traditional children's bedtime story? Well, the mechanism of each book is a little bit special. They, They start with a breathing practice that helps parents settle in and relax. The end of the story also has an activity page that again opens the possibility for connection and uh, conversation. And then the core values in the books um, are uh, uniquely human and something that everyone's going to face. The boy who searched for silence helps children to find silence within themselves. The prayer who searched for God helps children to use prayer and breath to find God within themselves. The elephant who tried to tiptoe, reminding children to be their true selves and to love the body they have. The hug who got stuck, teaching children to access their hearts and get free from sticky thoughts. And then the South African story, How Diablo Became Spirit, an animal whisperer story that shows children how to connect with animals and respect all living beings. Oh, wow, this is amazing. You really have encapsulated so many values that parents want to teach their children. What's your inspiration? Well, when I started healing on my own journey and training and learning about developmental psychology, I could see that all of us are dealing with issues that started before we were six years old. And uh, it would really be helpful if some of these messages that I didn't get as a kid were available to other kids. Love the fact that you used six years old because there's that famous Jesuit saying, give me a child for the first seven years and I'll give you the man. Today we would say the woman. But it's such a crucial part of development in a child's life. Okay, so you were inspired. And what is the feedback you're getting from your books, from children and parents? Well, parents around the world are really 
finding that the breathing practice is helping them immensely to create connection with their kids. Uh, even though it can be a bit awkward when they start, it's a new practice. Um, once they get it, the kids love it. Uh, we're also hearing that kids are opening up and sharing more and that the space that parents are creating in the last 20 minutes of the day is allowing connection that then lets kids' natural curiosity and uh, confidence rise up because when they go to sleep feeling safe and loved and like they belong and that they matter, you know, then they shine. Are these books specifically for the last 20 minutes of the day? Could you read them at another time of the day? Well, I read them at schools. Teachers are using them all the time in the classroom. There's classroom teaching aids on the website. There's coloring in sheets that families can use as well. So, uh, no, the, the, the values can be uh, brought into life. You know, it's so fun when you can say, oh, have you got a sticky thought? Now, what what am I mean by that? Well, the kids have already learned it because the hug gets stuck in the web of sticky thoughts. And we know how the hug gets free. And so if we say, have you got a sticky thought? Or, you know, are you like the elephant to try to, to uh, like, are you being yourself right now? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and your illustrations are remarkable. You've got such beautiful pictures which really do speak to children and adults. Yes, and, and the typical picture book format is uh, for kids aged 3 through 7 or 8. Um, but what we find is that the teenagers uh, will resonate with it if it's in the home. You can't give it to them in the same way that you can give it to a, a four-year-old. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, when I travel and I work in schools, and I'm often invited into the high school to talk about how books are created and how stories are written, how characters are developed. Um, and then also this, the simplicity of story time with four- and five-year-olds is such a joy. And, of course, you can't put an age group for when it comes to values and the lessons you're teaching is from 1 to 100. No, that's so well said. Where can we get hold of your books? So uh, in South Africa, exclusive books, uh, bargain books, and our website, ConsciousStories.com, and we can courier them out to you directly. That's fantastic. All the best. Thanks for joining us. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Denise Fourier is the lucky winner of a signed copy of Margaret Atwood's Booker Prize-winning The Testaments, along with a Testaments tote bag, pin badge, and T-shirt. Now, that's one happy way to enter the festive season, Denise. That's all we have for you this month, Bookwise. If you missed all or part of this month's show or simply need a reminder of the books we've reviewed, go to our website fmr.co.za where we post the Book Choice podcast every month. Thanks to Chekhovatso Modika for working the desk and Rick Everett for the musical interlude. And I look forward to joining you again next month with a festive holiday bouquet of books.